This edition of A Link to the Cast is dedicated to the life and times of Sotaro Iwata, the president and CEO of Nintendo who passed away on July 11th, 2015. across the pond is Dave Ryan. Dave Ryan, how are you? Warm. It's uh, very humid here. Very rainy, but somehow still humid, so we can't enjoy the good weather or kind of uh, moan about the bad weather. We're getting the worst of both. That's pretty much most of the UK Isle at the moment seems to be along those lines. Um, I feel our weather pattern seems to be following suit. I feel like there's just this, I think there was some weather diagram and there's just like this big kind of death circle around most of the UK at the moment. So I think we're all kind of in the same boat. Just, just going to breeze past you, including us all under the UK umbrella there and not start an entirely different podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Trolling, obviously. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I saw Terminator Genesis and it wasn't the worst film I ever saw. And that makes me really upset. That's one of those films that, like, um, from the very first trailer I saw, I I am shocked that anybody has anything remotely nice to say about it. Yeah, I kind of saw the trailer, and, and I... Well, the trailer made me want to go and see it, but for all the wrong reasons. Maybe that was their intention, I have no idea. I, I just thought, this can't be... This has to be, like, Terminator 3 levels of bad, surely... And then it just turned out to be an alright sci-fi action flick. And that makes me more disappointed than anything else. Uh, you see, it kind of disappoints me as well, because this week I had planned to do back-to-back of potentially crazy films at some point of going to see Jurassic Park and then going straight into Terminator Genesis. So now knowing that both of them are kind of like average and a little bit weird or crazy, um, yeah, I don't know if I'm as excited, because like, I, I, I like films that are really good, and I really like films that are really bad as well, and kind of anything that lands in between is just disappointing to me. Yeah, they're just both heroically dumb, and Genesis suffers from what I like to call the Bioshock Infinite Syndrome of fucking well, let's around. Let's not say things with regret, Mark. Let's it, not say things with regret. Um, no regrets here. They fuck around with this whole parallel timeline nonsense, and they think they sound cleverer than they actually are, kind of like me. And we all are the same in that, no, it's just a lot of hot nonsense. But as long as you switch that part of your brain off and just kind of go with a ride, yeah, it's all right. And Arnie's quite fun and he's sort of self-aware about the whole thing. And yeah, it's all right. And I find almost any uh, kind of uh, property that comes out, whether it's a game, whether it's a book, whether it's a movie, if the words time travel are involved you have to have a certain pep talk with yourself beforehand just to say if you're expecting sense and logic 100% of the time during this, you are going to the wrong film or you're, you've bought the wrong game. It does also depend on what film you're kind of watching because with something like Terminator Genesis or just Terminator in general, I can kind of switch it off. With Interstellar, I kind of felt like Nolan was really trying to tackle it seriously and just yeah. 
just there was some smoke coming out of my head, and I partially am happy to say that that's because of my lack of understanding on the concept, but also just him kind of real. Well, I mean, he had some dimension that was involved inside his daughter's bookcase, and I just thought I can't be dealing with this. And stay tuned for more on that in next week's link to the box office. <laughs> hey, there's an idea. So, <laughs> I think games. Uh, yeah, uh, spoiler, timestamp, if you have not finished yes. Batman Arkham Knight yet, and you don't want to know about stuff that happens in that game, you might want to kind of switch off for the time being, and I will timestamp when to come back in. With all that done, let's go on with this. Batman Arkham Knight. You've finished this now. We've, well, we've both finished We've both finished it. I was a good way through the campaign. I was, uh, I thought I was only about... I thought it was halfway. Turns out I was about a third of the way. But I think, like, pretty much the day after we recorded last time, I ploughed through almost the whole thing in one sitting, um, give or take uh, a lunch here or there. Yeah, I had about two days of just really hammering through as much content as possible. Um, I would... In terms of before as well, uh, just to kind of see where you are relative to me before we kind of get into the uh, the, the minutia of, of the game. In terms of the full completion now, where are you with the post game? Uh, are you just kind of, you've just done the main campaign, a little bit of stuff here and there? Oh god, no, 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 I'm about 84% full completion. I've got yeah. just some of the Militia Towers and like pretty much all of the Riddler content, but whether yeah. I'll bother with the Riddler stuff, I'm kind of undecided on at the moment yeah, i'm at 96 percent, and i can tell you conclusively now the riddler can go fuck himself <laughs> i'm still on the uh on the journey you might have seen a couple of live streams i did this week i'm still on the journey to the platinum in batman i'm going to do it mark i'm, I'm determined to get this platinum or the batnum as i'm calling it now you're a god among uh, them I'm, I'm going to get it. Um, a couple of things that are annoying is that um, there's a few trophies that I should be able to get on the first playthrough that I can't because uh, they were glitched at first. And the only way that the patch works uh, on kind of pat on getting rid of those glitches and the trophies is by starting the new game. But I was kind of stepped in so far with the game the first time around. There was no point in restarting it just to get those trophies. So there is one trophy that requires you to beat the campaign again on New Game Plus. So I'm just going to kind of pick up whatever's left. I'm going to get the 100% completion um, with all the Riddler crap on my first go. And then second time round, I'll just get those stupid little trophies and uh, beat the main campaign. As far as I'm concerned, the Riddler can stay locked in that fucking basement of his. I've got no (laughs) desire to pick him out. I thought briefly, um, for people who kind of aren't kind of uh, trophy whores like uh, like I am, um, there's... One of the trophies is it requires you to beat the game 100% to lock up all of Gotham's maximum security criminals. Uh, I've got 10 out of the 11. There's a nice little scoreboard on the inside of the GCPD that keeps you updated as to how many of the general population uh, of the cells you have filled up and how many of the maximum security people you have filled up. The last one I have in the entire city is the Riddler. It looked like because of the way the the progress wheel, I find the uh, the the interface will let you know how far you're along with the progress of things is actually really really good yeah. on the game. Um, and it was the progress on it was wheeling up really quickly as I was just doing uh, the Riddler challenges, which are Riddler has kidnapped uh, Catwoman, Sling Kyle, and uh, attached uh, plastic explosives to a collar on her neck, and you have to complete various challenges. Uh, almost always involving the Batmobile across Gotham City to get keys to gradually kind of uh, free her. 
and um, the way the progress was wheeling up really quickly as I was doing those, I thought, oh God, I actually might get away with getting them locked up without getting the Riddler trophies. God, should I be so lucky? Because when you look at the list of Riddler trophies and there's 240 of them, it's very, very intimidating. Um, But then I find out that the very, very last bit of that fight with the Riddler where you have to get the final key that... uh, well, no, you've, you've you've freed Catwoman, but you have to fight the Riddler with her, to, by the looks of it, to finally defeat him and lock him away. And that final boss battle, per se, is locked behind. He tells you not to come back until you've got all his trophies. So you have to get all the trophies to be able to finally lock him away. So I'm currently in the process of doing that. I'm at about... I started a day ago, maybe a little bit more, and I'm up to about 70 of the 240 so uh, progress is slow but it's happening a fruitful use of your summer holidays indeed yeah so like the main actual campaign itself and this is where we're going to get really kind of spoilerific now indeed I always um, I like to feel I have the advantage of coming into any comic book adaptation of not being fully immersed into the source subject slash not really caring about the source material so I can kind of have a um a less of an emotional investment, so I have less chance of being disappointed. Yeah. Sometimes works, sometimes doesn't. Um, but I have a pretty big investment with the Arkham series because, well, really, it's actually mainly because of Arkham Asylum, because, as we discussed before, I'm not the biggest fan of Arms- Arkham City. And I was kind of worried about coming into Arkham Knight if it was going to be, and I'm pretty sure, pretty sure I asked you in the last show, like, how much does it follow suit to uh, Arkham City? But I do feel that Arkham Knight stands on its own, um, and it doesn't feel in any way like a, a kind of clone carbon copy of, of Arkham City. It really does feel. It, it like only it game. only does in as much as it's another Batman game set in a wide kind of sandboxy environment with a lot of side quests. It yeah. does it a lot better, but that is like that's pretty much the only real kind of parallel. And you you get some side characters and some gang members you swoop over referencing the events of the Arkham City game. But other than that, you're right, it's completely standalone. Yeah, and I one of the reasons why I feel it's so much better is I feel that the actual story is uh, it's a lot more focused, a lot more concrete. And... Uh, the words you kept uh, telling me uh, over text message during the week was cinematic. Yeah, yeah, it, it has a real, real cinematic cinematic quality, much like Arkham Asylum, which... I remember the first time I played that, I was just blown away um, by some of the stuff that it did. And I feel there are times where Arkham Asylum blows... Um, Arkham Knight, sorry, blows that out of the way. And that a lot of that is mainly based around the Joker and his inclusion into this story. And I was kind of wrong... Interestingly, I, I find in terms of the kind of cinematic nature of the game, I find the parallel I draw more... Um, some people might be inclined to say, well, if it's cinematic, then maybe you would draw parallels between Arkham Knight and say the Nolan trilogy or something like that but I would be more inclined to draw a parallel between Arkham Knight and the Batman animated series that is much beloved of the children of our generation yeah, yeah. Um, in terms of it being like for an animated series it was a very cinematic series it was very serious it was very adult themed for a cartoon that was on at that time obviously this game is far more adult themed as we're probably going to get into Um. And also, it was something that rewarded fan service. So people who knew their Batman lore had some kind of... There was, you know, there was a nod of the cap towards those people throughout the animated series. And I feel there was a lot of occasions 
during this and it's kind of one of those occasions where maybe it didn't work out as well for you that there were nods to things that happened in the animated series and in the comic books that I really appreciate and got a lot of fun out of being referenced in this game. Um, I mean, I don't feel there was a lot that was lost to me. I mean, I'm more in tune with Batman than I am most other yeah, well, um, I suppose series. what I mean is, like, it, it has that fan service in it, and it doesn't detract from the main story. It's not like you going in there and not knowing your Batman back and front yeah, yeah. is going to harm your experience in any way. But I think what it does is, for people like me, who have half a creaking shelf full of Batman comics, <laughs> who have a, a ridiculously unnecessary amount of, like, Batman-related animated shows, um, kind of movies and stuff like that, sitting on a hard drive somewhere, it enhances the experience for me so like i i hear references to like there's a um, there's a moment in kind of uh, the final act of the game where batman does his i am the knight speech like lifted straight out of the um the animated series and the comic books and i enjoyed that quite a bit there are references to very specific arcs in the comic books like the killing joke uh, death of the family uh, or a death in the family, sorry, death of the family is a new 52 thing. Um, and things like that, that really kind of like, they don't take away from your experience because they go over your head nicely without making you feel like you've lost out. But at the same time, they make the experience that much better for people who are just Batman crazy. Yeah. And I mean, the whole uh, inclusion of Joker, as I said, at, uh, when he kind of first appeared, I, I almost rolled my eyes for a second. I was like, really? Are we, are we going back to this? I thought we was going to move on and have Scarecrow and, and all the stuff that was going on with that but he actually really becomes the life of the game and uh, there is actually and I was reading about this some people have kind of made a similarity between Elizabeth in Bioshock Infinite and yeah, the way that and I, I'm kind of I'm inclined to go on board with it but I think I enjoy it so much more here because I just I really marvelled at some of the places that Joker would kind of pop up that you're just not prepared for, and this is the kind of thing where this game does so many times, and I'd love to see a, a kind of development documentary on this game because there are certain events that appear that don't feel like they were just programmed to appear at a particular time. Like Joker, just you'll randomly jump jump onto a building and he's just there just to have a chat about something, which sometimes is actually kind of pivotal to the plot that's going on. Sometimes it's not. It's just kind of him rambling on because he's a joker. And I was just, I was amazed that the cohesiveness of that. There are interesting things they program into the game, like how um, the joker would be sitting there. You'll have full control over Batman in an environment. You'll be walking around in a building, say, sneaking up on some dudes. And the joker would be sitting there on like a chest of drawers or something. And he'll be babbling away at you stuff that, like you said, could be quite important to the plot. Now you could stand there and stare at the Joker and listen to him go on, and he will go on at length. Or you could keep moving, but the way they've programmed the game is that if you move to another area, he just pops up in that area as well. They're prepared for anywhere you could possibly move within the time he's speaking, and they have him on the next building or in the next room. Or sometimes um, I crawl through vents, and he's sitting there in a dead end of the vent with yep. his legs up, relaxing, and he's still talking to you. The best it's one, brilliantly done. Best one for me is I was in Predator mode, and I had about twelve guys on the floor, and I think I'd taken a couple out, and there was chaos and ballyhoo. And I could just see at a corner of my eye, Joker was down at the bottom on the floor, just kind of sitting on a guardrail, just kind of, you know, minding his own business. 
and uh, I pop for that. I pop for that huge. And I think it goes without saying that Mark Hamill does a phenomenal job, as he has done throughout the entire Arkham series. Um, there, are ma- there are many people who very validly argue he is the best Joker of all time between the games and the animated series, um, that he has done it better and more consistently than anyone else. It is They are big shoes to fill, um, as Jared Leto is going to find out. <laughs> uh, yeah. But... Uh, I think he like it, it's incredible what a job he's he does as the Joker. It, it really is incredible. Um, yeah, yeah. And so the Arkham Knight now is the Arkham Knight like an original creation for this game? Yes, um, he's an original creation for this game. However, his origin co-ops um, something else from the books. If you want me to, do you want me to elaborate on that before you? Before you continue? No. Okay. <laughs> Just will <laughs> beat right. it all night. Um, no, no, it's it's very it's very it's very quick. Okay, go on. Then. Basically, the person who uh, you find out again, if you're still listening to this and don't think there's going to be big spoilers, you're a fucking idiot. Um, spoiler, spoiler. The Arkham Knight is Jason Todd, the second Robin, who gets quote-unquote killed in a death of the family gets beaten to death by a pi- with a pipe uh, or a crowbar by the Joker uh, in the comic books he goes on to become Red Hood he returns, uh, he doesn't really die he gets uh, he comes back as Red Hood and is a very violent man who kind of is a vigilante like Batman but at the same time isn't afraid to kill and the only thing I thought was weird about them co-opting that into who the Arkham Knight is because I thought it was very good even though I did see it coming from very early on that that's what they were going to do um, I thought that it was strange to have him in it when also in one of the DLC packs that you get uh, Red Hood is in it uh, where um, where does that I mean if that takes place after Arkham, the events of Arkham Knight maybe that makes sense uh, I, I've only started playing through it. I, I don't know what sort of... I know the Harley Quinn Arkham episodes that was also released at the same time you know, as part of your kind of pre-order bonus or whatever happens in between City and Night. But uh, the whole thing is that like uh, Jason Todd comes back and terrorizes Gotham as the Red Hood and Batman's got to go and hunt him down. Right. Well, I mean, because I, for me, it, it kind of clicked about halfway through of the flashback sequences of Joker torturing Jason Todd, because my brain kind of went, "Why am I being shown this? What purpose does this uh, serve to the main plot?" And my brain kind of went, "Well, this is obviously just a plot device to for when Arkham Knight re- is revealed to be Jason Todd." And yeah, so I got that pretty early on, and there is a kind of fine line between. You, you got to serve a couple of masters. You need to serve the people that aren't in tune with, you know, the kind of real heavy Batman lore, and you need to serve the other side of people who do know about Jason Todd, do know about Red Hood, etc., etc. And I yeah, kind of, like, bait- I, I, I love Batman lore, but at the same time, I don't hold it as kind of gospel. I'm always willing to have someone else do a different interpretation. Yeah. Like I don't necessarily believe that it should be canon that Jason Todd becomes Red Hood. I just thought it was very strange that they kind of they took their time to be very kind of faithful to a lot of the canon and then did this at the same time i just thought it was a little bit jarring i still really enjoyed it and i like i think of all the people you could have had possibly show up as arkham knight i think jason todd makes by far the most sense yeah and i, I was fine with that and i actually I, 
I kind of pondered on whether the whole flashback of showing Joker torturing Jason Todd was necessary and whether it kind of gave too much away, made it too obvious. But at the same time, it kind of, it kind of keeps the plot flowing along and it it's used in the whole kind of Joker essentially torturing Batman as well at the same time. And it kind of carries that evolution of the story along as well. So I was kind of fine with it. But I did wonder, is, like, is this like too obvious for some people? Is it necessary? But I think it was very effective in, in that role. Um, I feel that the kind of boss sequences, if you want to call them that, with the Arkham Knight were kind of disappointing. And I think that's actually uh, an overall trend or theme with the Arkham series is that kind of final boss bites are usually uh, usually the most kind of disappoint- disappointing things about them. I don't know if you agree I, with I that. Find, I find particularly the um, there's a particular boss battle with the Arkham Knight that's underground when he's in the massive drill. Yeah. Um, that one I found, that was of all the things that felt like a... Uh, some of the complaints which I kind of like dismissed out of hand last week because I, I've had no problem with the controlling the Batmobile. Um, of all the things that people say, like there's a lot of things that are shoehorned into it that are contrived reasons for you to need the Batmobile. I feel that boss battle is the only one of them where I'm just like, really, did we fucking need this at all? Yeah, and I... um, it's just it, it just doesn't. It's it's wacky, like for kind of like a a series that's like deathly serious most of the time. It's a little bit silly having like the massive drill. Um, I think some of the other kind of uh, encounters with the Arkham Knight are much more faithful to kind of who that character is, like the kind of the extended um, segments of you in Predator mode make a lot more sense Yeah. Uh, for what that character is, for his like his his training um, and stuff like that and for who the character portrays himself as. Uh, but yeah, that that battle with the massive drill, I uh, the, that's the only part of the game that I was just like, oh, for fuck's sake, I'm just <laughs> going to get through this and be done with it. Yeah, and like the kind of key word there, or key term, whatever, is, is kind of shoehorning. And that was, I feel, one of my biggest issues overall, of a number of issues, to be honest, with Arkham City, is there was stuff that was there that I felt was just there to it was shoehorned in. It it didn't really serve any purpose then, other than just they needed to throw something yeah, in there. But like you're gonna get that with any sandboxy game at all. Really. Yeah, well, like, to a great rest. Like you know what I mean. Like like for example, Grand Theft Auto Five, like an absolute masterpiece. Ten out of ten thrown at a left, right, and center. But like that game is chock full of side quests that are completely identical and are just shoehorned in there to have extra content. Well, I I, I meant more. I kind of I I make that like. I I make that concession when it comes to buying sandbox games uh, that there's going to be some of that. Like I said, once the main kind of once there's once you're able to get through the main thread of it, get through the narrative, get through the main arc of it, and the stuff that seems repetitive or shoehorned is largely a la carte, is largely kind of you you know like some of the side quests like for people who hate the Batmobile, a lot of the Batmobile side quests you can completely avoid. Um, you know what I mean, and that's the that's the ideal way to do it. Is that the stuff that you feel that you're shoehorning in shouldn't be part of the main narrative, and that's why I had such a problem with the drill boss battle is because you have to get through that. Um, that it isn't just something that's part of a side quest or a final kind of um, a final encounter with someone on the most wanted list. It's something you absolutely have to get through if you want to be rewarded with continuing on. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I was talking more in terms of just some of the characters or the way they were used in Arkham City felt shoehorned in, but, like, their usage, like, for example, the Penguin, I feel was actually, he's kind of side quest here, I feel, um, not so much served more of a purpose, but just seemed to fit more within this world, and it, it makes me enjoy those side quests more, enjoy the side quest that it is anyway, because he's not really much of a side quest in City. Um... But the way that he's used to include like Nightwing and stuff like the Two Face side quests, which give you that kind of true, just that original Arkham Asylum Predator style mode, yeah. um, you know, and puts it into kind of bite sized chunk pieces. I, I like the way they're used. And it's interesting. I actually saw people, a lot of people, like uh, that were giving out and concerned about the uh, the Two Face missions just being kind of like because it's four or five identical heists and stuff like that but i did see it the the same way as you where i was like well this is refreshing this is back to basics for the the arkham series like i enjoyed that yeah and like i mean i i really enjoyed the batmobile i you know i, I by the time i started playing it i'd already heard a lot of divisive opinions on the batmobile but yeah uh, it took a few minutes to kind of get used to the controls of it but it's like i'm not playing a driving game i'm playing a sandbox game that has a driving mechanic in it i expect it to play to the world that the driving mechanics are confined to and for me the driving mechanics are built around this is probably going to be played by you know a 12 year old at some point although actually with some of the themes that are in this game perhaps that's yeah. the best idea but at some Indeed. point i imagine it probably will be so it needs to be dumbed down for a person to drive like that so it's like yeah and it's the fucking batmobile i expect i can drive into the side of a building and take most of it down i expect it to be kind of a little bit clunky but just to be foolproof dumb proof and i feel it it served that purpose and the way that the control scheme is built around using the Batmobile and Batman himself, for that, um, for that, for that matter, works perfectly fine. And going into tank mode is seamless. It's quick. And I, to be fair, I actually found the Batmobile very easy to control because if I needed to make a sharp turn, I could, or a U-turn, I could literally just whack on tank mode, turn around, and off I go again. And I found that to be quite beneficial. So I was very surprised to, to, to see all of the sort of negative reactions to the Batman because I had no problems with it at all. Yeah, I wouldn't say it was my favourite thing about the game, but um, it's certainly, like, I certainly enjoyed it at points. And I find it's one of the things that is actually keeping me going through these god-fucking-frustrating uh, finding these Joker, or not Joker, sorry, Riddler trophies, is that a lot of the puzzles to unlock the trophies involve you actually having to think really outside the box and use a combination of remote controlling the Batmobile and your gadgets that you have on you. So, like, I, I quite enjoy the Batmobile. I'm fine with it. Yeah. Um, one other big thing, and I, actually the Batmobile kind of uh, is in this critique, but at the same time I can see why they bring it back. Um, the death of Oracle was a pretty significant point for me in the game, and yeah. it's you know, it's designed to be that way. And I found that not that it gave me the kind of reaction that a 10-year-old playing Final Fantasy VII and, and Aerith Ares dying, um, I didn't shed, shed any tears about it, but I did find it to be very powerful and I found it to be a driving force for me wanting to... Well, it got me invested in the game, it got me invested in the story, and it was a driving force for me to, to want to complete the story and extract my revenge, etc, etc. And... I feel that they did a kind of Hollywood-esque style plot twist and I felt 
kind of cheapened out by her return. And I wasn't entirely surprised by it, but I was still very disappointed by it because I felt that that imagery and that whole scene was so fucking powerful. And I kind of feel that they just... I don't know, something was lost, something was taken away, and I felt a little bit hollow, a little bit emptier for uh, the, her being brought back. Yeah, I didn't get I didn't get that kind of, that hollow feeling you did, and that is probably down to one of these occasions where, because I am, a, like, a Batman comics guy and a comics guy in general, I have this thing in the back of my head that no one ever really actually dies in comic books. Yeah. You know what I mean? They're usually very swiftly brought back. Like, we've already talked about Jason Todd coming back as the Red Hood. The reason Jason Todd was killed in the first place is because people fucking hated him as Robin. And there was a big vote. Should we kill... Like, the DC had a vote. Should we kill off Robin? And everyone was like, fuck yeah, we should. So they killed him off. And everybody assumed for a while that he had been killed off. And then they brought him back. Even though, like, if you read The Death of the Family, it seems pretty conclusive that he is deader than Disco. Like... Uh, kind of for me, like I really enjoyed if they had ke- like if they kept her dead, that was brilliant. Like it, it's great for the kind of um, the the drama of the whole thing, and it it ups the stakes quite considerably. But at the same time, um, it is probably just because I have experienced it so many goddamn times with comic books that no one ever actually dies. So I always assume they're coming back before the end. Yeah, I I think the only argument I'll make with that is they were comfortable enough, probably because her kind of character, her role in the plot wasn't that essential, but they were more than happy to kill off Poison Ivy um, without no return whatsoever. And I was like, if you can do that with at least a character to some description, I feel like they could have done it with Oracle. But I, I don't know whether... Uh, I'm sort of in the majority or minority with that critique. But I just again, felt... again, like, it's a thing where, like, I completely understand where you're coming from. I completely understand. But at the same time, like, like with Poison Ivy and like with Joker, who we both feel are conclusively killed off at this point, if for some reason, even though it looks like they're going to stay true to their word and not make another Arkham game, if another one came out, I would not be shocked if both <laughs> Joker and Poison Ivy somehow came back from the dead. There has been a number of times in many different iterations of Batman where it is assumed for all intents and purposes that the Joker is dead or that different kind of villains are dead and they always come back. Like, it was, I, I think it was it was nice the way uh, Poison Ivy died, kind of redeeming herself and, and stuff like that. Um, and it was cool to open the game with them demonstrating to how conclusive it was that the Joker was dead by you incinerating his body. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, like I said, it, it's just a thing I have built into my head from years and years of reading comic books is that I never take a death seriously. Like it, Marvel had this big press campaign last year about how they were kill, killing off Wolverine in the comic books finally. And the entire world's reaction to that was just like, well, countdown to Wolverine's big return in comic books, yeah. you know, six months from now. Yeah, uh, I mean, that that's more the story for another time for why I, I yeah. don't really read comic books, but <laughs> yeah. it, it's a fair point, and it, it's kind of hard to argue with that. Um, but yeah, I, I can see I can see why they did it. I'm just disappointed that they decided to go with that route. Um, I guess the only other two things to talk about, really, is Scarecrow, who I think he... He's a really good antagonist for a large portion of the game until he just becomes this just rambling rhetoric uh, preacher almost with a gun. 
and I just I I kind of lost interest by the end of him by the end of it and he, that kind of final confrontation just did nothing for me yeah I fully, like I, I never I'd have to kind of um, rewatch some of the cutscenes to like look at that more closely but I don't remember ever kind of getting sick of him or anything like that in fact like I, I thought it was one of the better takes on Scarecrow who before kind of Killian Murphy played him in, in Batman Begins was really kind of like a B or C list, one of the rogues gallery for Batman. Um, I've really enjoyed the take on him throughout the, the Arkham series and um, having him as the, the, the big bad in a game was kind of refreshing for me. And maybe that's why I kind of like it bought a little bit more credit when things got a bit wackier towards the end. Um, I, I, but I then, did... like you're talking, you're talking to a guy who loves Bray Wyatt's rambling promos about half the time. So, uh... <laughs> but don't get me wrong; like I was really enjoying him for the kind of first half of the game. But then I think, like a Bray Wyatt promo, he starts to repeat himself and he starts to just ramble on about fear, and you will taste fear and more fear, and it's like, all right, I get it. You fucking made your point. Shut up. Let me just get on with it. <laughs> uh, and I know there was just something about him holding a gun that I felt just doesn't ring true with the Scarecrow character and what I know about him, but I may be way off with that statement. Um, and yeah, other than that, uh, Sing Along with the Joker, that might have been the greatest moment in video games of all time. <laughs> it was pretty special, wasn't it? I fucking loved it. <laughs> um, I really enjoyed, speaking of things with Joker, like, like I love that, but I love that whole uh, really trippy ending sequence with the, you know, the, the kind of the wrestling for batman sanity thing yeah i think um, i need to really go back over that because it it in again with a comparison to bioshock infinite i was kind of going along not really knowing what the fuck was going on and i feel like i'm gonna have to yeah i wouldn't say it's as deep and as oh, God, uh, no. based in theoretical physics as the uh <laughs> the ending sequence for uh Bioshock Infinite, but at the same time it was kind of like uh, uh, it was really, really well done. Yeah, uh, like when you think about the themes of fear and the kind of like the the wrestling between good and evil and the stuff like that, and that it concludes with like I mentioned before, Batman's "I am the Knight" speech, uh, which is like you know for a Batman fan, it's goosebumps kind of stuff. Like, um, yeah. Well, I <laughs> see when he said, "I'm not afraid to to crane." I had a flashback to Home Alone two. And I don't think that was where I was supposed to be getting my source material from. I don't think that's what they were shooting for. No, no. That might be says says more about me. Um, but I'm an overall... I, I've seen some kind of really negative response to the game. And that I'm... I put more down to just, just how good Arkham Asylum was. And yeah, how hard... I wonder, I wonder... And I've said this to a couple of people during the week. Is like, I wonder if you reverse the order that those games came out in. How they'd be remembered. Because I think... Like, don't get me wrong, before you jump down my throat a bit, me not, as if I'm saying that uh, Arkham Asylum isn't very good, it is, it's one of the best games I've ever played in my life, but at the same time, I think a lot, um, at, at least part of the reason it is so lauded is because, in terms of expectations, it came absolutely fucking out of nowhere. Oh yeah. But by the time Arkham Knight comes out, we are three to four games into that franchise, depending on whether you want to include uh, Arkham Origins in that. By which time we know what Batman combat is about, we know what to expect from these games. Like if Arkham City was the one that was the um, kind of like I know you didn't care for the game, but had the shadows of Mordor effect, where that game came out of absolutely nowhere, people assumed it was going to be terrible, and people loved it. Um, would people kind of remember 
this game Arkham Knight more fondly if they hadn't had three games of the same combat system beforehand, I wonder. Yeah, I think it it goes in beyond that. I think that uh, potentially people are just a bit Batmaned out at this point, if you will. Because, like, Arkham Silent came a year after The Dark Knight, and, you know, that was a pretty pivotal, game-changing moment in terms of comic books and kind of their place in the wider world uh and you know just there was a kind of a, a two-hit combo of the dark knight and arkham asylum and you know we're now six seven years down the line and we've had so much stuff thrown at us and we've got even more stuff with batman versus superman and suicide squad in terms of the joker and uh not that I feel like it's starting to be kind of wrung dry by any means, but I just feel like I'm I'm ready to kind of put Batman to the side for the time being and and move on to something else. And certainly from the kind of gameplay side of things, it's there are times where Arkham City and Arkham Knight feel like they're just having to be bigger and bat bigger and better and or just bigger in general because that's what you do with a sequel and you just want to pad out as much as you can and it has got a little bit of that what I like to call the Assassin's Creed syndrome of just there is stuff there for the sake of being there but I do feel that the inclusion of it is more is better laid out and more thought out certainly than just Arkham City because the my biggest issue I think overall actually with Arkham City is just that everything is pretty much thrown at you from the get go and your HUD is just this cluttered fucking mess and I feel that uh, Night really kind of paces itself out a lot more um, in tune with kind of how Arkham Asylum was paced. So, yeah, I think Arkham Knight is a great game. I think there's no reason that you shouldn't play it if you're a fan of the Arkham series. I'm pretty sure that if you're listening to this and have any interest, you probably already have played it and completed it. But it gets a it gets two thumbs up from me easily. I've, I really, really enjoy playing it. Yeah, I think... Uh... We'll put that uh, lengthy Batman discussion to bed for now. Uh, we may have more to talk about on July 14th when the um, the Batgirl DLC comes out. Um, but uh, for now, at least, we might uh, shell Batman and move on, shall we? Yeah, please do. Let's, um, oh. I, I, there's a game that seems to be call, causing quite a stir at the moment. So Indeed, indeed. Uh, please yeah, tell me so, about it. This is, is going to be my elevator pitch to you. I've been playing a game this week. Um, a lot of the games I've been playing this week are games I've already talked about in the podcast, like Yoshi's Woolly World, Batman, which we've talked at length about already, um, playing a bit more of The Witcher and stuff like that. But I decided what I'm going to try and do is like play something new for every show so that I at least have something different to talk about every week. So the game I took a, pin, uh, a punt on for this show is a game called Her Story, which I've heard a lot of buzz about. Um, Giant Bomb in particular, who I kind of like, if they're talking, raving about a game, I will generally tend to give it a look. Um, I've been raving about this game, Her Story. They put up um, a massive interview between um, Austin Walker, who works for Giant Bomb, and um, the creator of this game, a guy called Sam Barlow, who is probably best known within the video games industry at the moment having created the surprisingly not terrible Silent Hill Shattered Memories and uh, another game called Isle which I have never played so I can't really speak to that uh, an Englishman like yourself so you'll be uh, you'll be proud uh, that this game uh, comes from him her story um, is a very very unusual indie game um, and has provoked um, a lot of love and a lot of discussion as to whether it is really a game or not 
Um, and I'm going to get into what I mean by that when I talk about it. Basically, the premise of the game is that a woman... Uh, I'm not going to spoil anything here because the whole game is the story. It is all about a woman who is interviewed back in 1994. I think it's 1994. Yeah, it is. Uh, she's interviewed on several different several different occasions about a crime that has happened involving her husband. You play somebody who is tasked with going through the police archives. Your entire interface for this game, the only way you interact with this game, is through a facsimile of a Windows 95 desktop, which looks incredible, right? Um, incredibly accurate and faithful to it. You... You basically, when you put on the game first, you have um, a search engine for the police archives with this woman's interviews, the, her seven separate interviews in it. And you must use search terms to try and find different video clips and then kind of piece together what has happened, right? So you'll go in and the first thing that's automatically there that's in the search engine for you to type, that's obviously, it's encouraged, that's the first thing you search for is the word murder. You put, you hit enter, five videos come up. The One of the wrinkles to it that makes it ex, uh, kind of exceedingly difficult is you can't just put in the word the and have a hundred videos come up. You put in the word murder, it only will throw back the first five in chronological order uh, videos that reference the word murder. Uh, from there, you can watch the video. You take notes on the video uh, within a little box to kind of add in, you know, what is she talking about in this video? So that, like, for future reference, you can come back to it to see if there's something else regarding this mystery that you didn't realize the first time around. So it's easier to get back to that video. Or you can hit uh, a button that's called Add to Session, where it throws it down in a little bar at the bottom so you have very, very important videos to this case that you want to keep. Um, basically you train yourself to start reading the little reactions. It, it is, it's just this one woman. You never hear the police ask questions. All the clips are just her responding. So part of it is you having to piece together what she's been asked. And it is masterfully acted by this woman. You have to read on the tiniest expressions, the tiniest little things she says, the little references she makes, the names she makes, chase up all of it as best you can. Because the more you refine the searches, the better chance you have of getting something really important to what's actually going on um and that's kind of one of the ways in which people are saying it's not really a game because you're using a search engine and watching videos there's not a lot of you know point and click shooty shooty bang bang kind of stuff that you would expect in like a large triple a game or anything like that it's real off the beaten track it's a very unusual experience um and kind of the other way in which they're saying that it is uh, that it's not a game, and it's, it's the part of it that's the hardest part for people to wrap their heads around, and it took me a little while as well to kind of wrap my head around the concept, is that the game doesn't really finish. Um, after you've watched, I think it's around the time you come across the first key video um, that kind of gives something really important away, because... As with all kind of like murder mystery whodunit sort of things, and I wouldn't be I wouldn't uh, be as silly as to say it's as simple as just a standard whodunit. Um, but it's kind of there, there's more than meets the eye to it. There's several layers to this thing that you have to unravel. But around the time I uncovered my first key video that gives something away that all is not what it seems with what's happening here, 
um, a chat window pops up, a very kind of rudimental kind of like almost like a, a real kind of old iteration of MSN kind of thing pops up in the corner. And it's someone who, by the looks of it, is outside ready to give you a lift, asking you, are you done? At which point you either say yes or no. You say no if you want to go back to it, and then you can call that guy back and say yes when you're done. And if you say yes, he will ask you to explain to him what you believe has happened. And regardless of what you say, the game will then end. Uh, The credits will roll. So it is a matter of you beat the game when you are satisfied you know what has happened. And I've watched, um, I intended to play it for about half an hour the first night I downloaded it on Steam. Because it, uh, oh, it's it's on Steam and iPads and uh, iPhone. Um, I, the first night I downloaded it, I only intended to play it for half an hour, see what was up, and then kind of dig into it a bit more the following day. Next thing I knew, four and a half hours of my life had disappeared. <laughs> right? This game is a real strong contender for me for Game of the Year. Because I was not expecting to get sucked in as much as I was. By the end, I was a sweaty mess. I had not, I had forgotten that I hadn't even had my dinner that evening. I had copious pages of notes that looked like Kevin Spacey's diary from the movie Seven, just thrown around the room trying to figure out what was going on. Uh, and I hadn't even, like, I, having watched, um, because I've, I, like, I've, quote unquote beaten the game now I have said I'm satisfied that it's over and the credits rolled and everything and having gone and watched uh, kind of discussions online with it uh, GameSpot have a particularly good one where they, they kind of uh, hash it out what they think has happened no one really knows what has happened there are a couple of different interpretations as to what it might be and I think maybe perhaps a future podcast, if you do play it yourself, Mark, a future podcast could be dedicated to that um, kind of in the same way we had our spoilery discussion of Batman. But uh, what I will say to anybody out there who is looking for uh, a 100% unique gaming experience, it is inspired, by the way, by, and this will tell, like, if you're familiar with these properties, this is a good pedigree. The man who uh, created the game is inspired by three things to make this game uh the book written by david simon the guy who created the wire i think it's murder life on the streets or something like that it's about uh, being a cop in baltimore um that kind of was the the book that spawned the corner and later the wire uh true detective and the podcast serial so if you if any of the, those three things are your kind of scene this is the game for you and even if they aren't it is still the game for you um like I said, it is right now possibly in pole position for my game of the year uh, in terms of, like, I haven't been that sucked into a game in a long, long time. It is only €6 on Steam uh, and probably about, like, £5 or something like that or a little bit less, and I think it's $5 or something like that on the US store. Uh, People out there have legitimately no excuse to buy it, and buy it legitimately. This is one guy making this game. Don't fucking rip him off and pirate it like a sack. Just go and pay for it, because it is worth quadruple what I paid for it, uh, in terms of the absolute obsession it became in my head over the course of that evening. The only question I have for you is, so you've said that you have made your decision on what you believe uh, actually happened. Now, can you... 
is is that your save file done? Can you play the game again to make another? You can uh, when you return to the game, then the thing comes up and it will offer you the chance that you can either continue and keep trying to because I haven't watched all the videos, but I believe I've watched all the key videos at this point. You can't just like there's a little display that shows you out of the total amount of videos how many you've watched. So you can keep going back into that save game and try and get 100% of the videos to get your Steam achievement for getting all the videos unlocked. Um, Or you can just start afresh. And obviously it's the same crime, so you'll know some of the key places to go. So what I think starting a, a new game would be awesome for would be, well, if you want to inspect, if you talk to your friends and they have a different interpretation of what has happened, well then you can start a new game and actually go down that rabbit hole instead of the one you went down the first time. Or you can start again if you decide, like having listened to other people, yeah, you're unsatisfied with the explanation you had had because you didn't think you went deep enough down the rabbit hole you already went down. So yeah, you do have the, uh, the option of being able to restart the game and get the thing. But there is no there's no end state to the game. It's not like if you type in the satisfactory conclusion, a special ending rolls or anything like that. And that's the kind of thing that people have a hard time getting their heads around is that you, you beat the game when you decide you've beaten the game. Yeah. Uh, I, I think that's the kind of thing that I, I think the reason people would not enjoy that is there is a satisfaction to having, you know, the kind of end scene, the end credits, uh, knowing that you've beaten a game, but when a game doesn't really give you that satisfaction, when it doesn't give you that option, it's you've ended the game on your terms, not on the terms that we've created for you. I think that can be a bit of a mindfuck for some people, and yeah, I quite like the, that. The same, yeah, at the same time, though, throughout those like four and a half hours or whatever I was playing it, um, I had multiple occasions where I would either accidentally or intentionally, through my means of searching, come across something that revealed another layer to the whole thing and there's immense satisfaction in that and like i said by the time i got to kind of you know are you done and i hit yes and the credits rolled i was incredibly satisfied that i was done uh having now looked at gamespot discussion and stuff and other kind of discussion threads on steam and whatever else um that's where I'm getting my kind of my desire to start a new game again because it's like oh well like I still think I'm right but you know maybe I'd like to investigate as to whether you know there is substantial evidence uh, to back up these other people who disagree with me fair enough um I yeah I've I've seen this uh, as kind of popped up in the last couple of weeks and it's given rise to uh, a whole bunch of people who bang on about how stuff like this is killing the video game industry and it's the kind of stuff that makes me happy that it actually exists to you know look the video game industry isn't any one thing and that's the beauty of it like it is an art form it's a it's a medium through which to express your creativity um a game is not any one type of thing it doesn't necessarily have to have a beginning middle and an end it doesn't necessarily have to be a first person shooter an rpg like anything like that Video games are what you make them. They are the experiences you get from them. And the the only thing that kind of separates it in in that way from kind of movies and stuff like that is that it is by far the most interactive way of doing those kind of things that we have. And like, even though it isn't kind of traditionally what you'd expect from a, like a AAA release, like fucking Activision aren't releasing her story anytime soon. You know what I mean? But it is these things, like you said, it is these things that these kind of games 
like I said, I harped on for two or three weeks in this podcast about Ether One because it was just like it was buggy, but it was fucking different. You know what I mean? And that's like what I look for now. Like I've been playing video games since I was about uh, three or four years old, and at this point, I've seen an awful lot of video games. I like you know what I mean. There, it is hard to give me a unique completely different experience and i really really savor when someone comes along and is thinking completely outside the box and that's what this is it is completely unlike anything else i have played or can remember playing and that is part of why i absolutely love it that there are people that are doing these mad fucking ideas that would not they would not exist in the AAA space at all and that's why it's great that we're going through in many ways the golden age of indie gaming preach on um, yeah, no, I, I fully agree with all of that. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I just I, I get I get very passionate about that game. It's I really really love it, and like I said, I I have never uh, on this show more strongly recommended a game than this. Everybody should pick it up um, because it is dirt cheap and it is worth way more than the price tag that's on it. So yeah, play it. <laughs> I I feel like I I better play it. I'll be very mad if you don't. Okay, I will put that on my to-do list for the week. Okay, so um, let's go into the exact opposite of passionate about games and start about the news for this week. Well, we better be quick on it because we are heavy, deep, deep into this show right now. Well, luckily, uh, now that kind of the dust has settled from E3, it is pretty, pretty quiet on the Western Front. So um, I'm just going to hammer through these news stories. Uh, I'll kind of throw it, throw each one to you and see what you have to say about them. Uh, I don't have an awful lot to say about most of them anyway. But uh, just to keep the folks at home updated. Uh, Drive Club PS Plus Edition has launched, um, finally. that uh, They seem to be kicking everything out of the bottom of the barrel there at Sony. They've put Last Guardian back up. It's coming out in 2016. And now, finally, after all this time, Drive Club PS Plus has come out. I, I mean, I've downloaded it. My kind of... Yeah, I've downloaded <laughs> it as well. And I think my impression uh, I gave to you pretty much sums up how I feel about it, which is, this is a very pretty-looking version of a genre of game I don't actually care about. <laughs> I, I I need to get around to actually um, giving it a go at some point, but I was kind of deep into the Batman uh, story campaign, and I was like, there is no fucking way Drive Club is getting any live today for the time being. So probably look, at some point this week, I'll, I'll... Yeah, look, it's a very pretty-looking game. Um, I can see what they were trying with some of the ideas that they're doing in there. Uh, it's not for me. Um, like, once every couple of Gran Turismo's, I might pick one of those up just to have it around the house for, like, a multiplayer experience. But other than that, I don't really care about driving simulators uh, in any sort of way. I I'm a car that... racer man. I hope they put that on the box art. Dave Ryan, a nice-looking game, not for me. <laughs> yeah. I, I really appreciate what they've done here, but no. Uh, speaking of uh, kind of disappointing things, we've got a Konami update, and that is the uh, Japanese voice actor for Snake has said that Kojima Productions has officially dissolved, uh, which should really surprise no one, Mark. No, I, I can't be disappointed about something that I entirely expected to happen. I don't know what they're going to do between, like, it is now the 12th of July, uh, between now and the 1st of September, it must take them an awful long time to find a back door to shove Kojima out of, uh, that they're not, they're not going to officially fire him, I assume, until that game is out, uh, so that people don't panic and cancel their pre-orders. I, I, fuck, the, the whole, the last six months of this game, 
have been it's been more yeah people the game itself is obviously interesting and it's going to be i'm sure it's going to be fantastic and there'll be a lot of discussion about that but the last six months it's been so much more about behind the scenes it's kind of like the wrestling world where you're not really interested in the main characters you're interested about what's going on behind the scenes and that's kind of been the deal here and it's just it's one fucking calamity after another, and I love it. It's great. I don't, I don't know if I said this at the time, uh, but if they said we're doing a special edition of Metal Gear Solid Five that has a bonus disc that is the documentary of the making of this game, and it's two hundred euro, I'd be like, yeah, sold. <laughs> <laughs> you just name a price, I will throw my wallet at your face. Yeah, uh, I I can see. It. Documentary. Did you ever see the uh, some kind of monster documentary on Metallica? Um, that would require me to have any sort of feelings about Metallica. You don't all. need to have feelings. You just need to see <laughs> Lars Ulrich and, and Hetfield in a room screaming at each other like a bunch of petulant 12-year-olds. It and... doesn't seem like something I need to see at all. No, no, no. It's great fun, let me tell you. <laughs> I really hope there's some sort of scene somewhere where there's Kojima and just like Konami executives just screaming at each other. I hope that exists somewhere in recorded form. <laughs> um, right, we'll, we'll move on. Uh, Moonville Entertainment this is just uh, brief because like my two gimmicks on this show are mentioning Konami and mentioning Silent Hill you've played uh, it a lot yeah Moonville Entertainment this is about the time that you mentioned something about Majora's Mask by the way Moonville Entertainment recreates Henry's apartment in Silent Hill 4 in the Unity in- engine so there's been like a popular trend uh, the last few months where people kind of indie developers or just people who are bored go and they use the Unity engine or they use the Unreal engine or something like that did you see the Mario recreate- one I saw the Mario one and it's fucking nightmare fuel. Um, <laughs> I will tell you that much more so than any Silent Hill game I've ever played. Um, Moonville Entertainment has recreated the apartment from Silent Hill Four, uh, the room, uh, which kind of just is the latest in a long string of things to do with the word Silent Hill that make me deeply sad because recreating it in the Unity engine looks so much like PT. And just reminds me of the game we're never going to get. But uh, I would recommend for anyone who's into Silent Hill or into that kind of trend of people remaking classic games into uh, modern engines. Yeah, see, uh, you've used the word classic one. game there with Silent Hill 4, and that's where I, I, I have to kind of take a step back. Uh, Silent, Hill, Silent Hill 4 is okay. Um, I'm not, fine yeah. with okay. Okay is a word yeah, we it's can not, use. Yeah, okay, yeah. Classic is, classic is a bit far. I mean, uh, older. I should okay. have said older. Games. All right. Dated. <laughs> Dated, yes. Um, okay, moving on again. Um, it, again, in news that will not shock anybody, uh, promo images for uh, a Pokemon XY movie that's coming out early next year in Japan has teased uh, an additional legendary Pokemon. I don't sort. care. Yeah. But the, the term the, legendary is so fucking... They have beaten that into the ground. Oh my god. I, look, let's get this one thing right here. I've probably... I'm not sure if spent or wasted is the right term to use, but one of those at least 400 hours on Pokemon in the last 20 odd years. I'm a fan of Pokemon. I'm over it. I don't care. Move on. Yeah, I'm not going to care about this because presumably because it's tied to XY, my guess is that means Pokemon Z is uh, going to be announced to tie in with the movie. I would put my life savings, which admittedly is not much, but I'd put it on it. (laughs) Yeah, uh, which is kind of like, that's the only real uh, important news coming out of that. That that is probably No, 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 news. Not important, not important, just news. No, but no, it's important in as much as that means that an actual new Pokemon game that isn't uh, just basically x and y mashed together so you so you can get more money out of your uh, fan base we're not going to get a new pokemon game for another couple of years yet which is profoundly disappointing to me 
uh, apart from Pokémon Tournament, which looks crazy. Um, so moving on again, again, shock horror in a cash grab new Lego game, uh, which was formally kind of announced uh, around Comic Con, which happened last weekend. Lego Avengers. Uh, just out in time for Christmas. Uh, normally, kind of, an, I, I enjoy Lego games. Normally, they don't really pique my interest when they're announced, but uh, this one kind of does because, in to my mind, the best of all those Lego games was Lego Marvel Superheroes, uh, which was a game I got with my PS4 when I got it, and I was surprised and blown away by how much I loved it. First ever platinum trophy I got uh, was for that game. Uh, that was ridiculously good. So if this game is anyway a patch on... Lego Marvel Super Heroes, I'd be very interested in that. But it's not exactly something I'm going to stick a pre-order down on, because uh, those Lego games can kind of go either way. See, I at this point, I'd like them to take the Lego video game series and, and put it against a, a tone that kind of seriously clashes, like a Lego Suicide Squad, or a Lego Manhunt, well, or I don't know if a you've seen the tra- Lego Mortal Kombat, sport, you know? Uh, I don't know if you've seen the Lego uh, the Lego Dimensions trailers, but they're doing Lego Portal. Yeah, I, I was looking for something a little bit more violent. <laughs> well, I think you can. You, I think you'll be looking for a while. Yeah, so do I. Um, this was an interesting one, and this kind of piques our interest considering the legacy uh, behind this game. Uh, some signature editions of Mighty Number no. Nine have been cancelled. Uh, which is quite curious, and it's another one of these things that is going to make uh, people who are already a little bit sceptical more sceptical about the idea of kickstarting games. Um, the idea that these are the people who have, I believe the Signature Edition was pretty much the most expensive edition of the game that you could buy, or at least it was one of the higher tiers of the game you could buy. And now a lot of people have been told that they won't be getting the Signature Edition of the game because they don't have enough of them. Now, I mean... That is disappointing. I feel like Mighty Number no. Nine is something I'm going to have to come back to at some point because, uh, as, as I'm sure you're all aware around here, I am the sort of Mega Man fanatic of Link to the Link to the Cast, and I don't think that game looks very good. Ooh, big shade. Yeah, it has a lot of the kind of Sonic fours about it in terms mm. of the original source material is just not something that should be adapted to the 21st century yeah. um, in terms of kind of the graphics and f- the physical way it looks but that's not really what we're talking about here but yeah that that is an, another issue that kind of with Kickstarter um, unless you are something like Shenmue and you know there's just no way in hell that's not going to be made well I mean we'll, we'll see what happens uh, That that's a, kind of a bad sign but it, yeah, it's Kickstarter. You take a risk. Yeah, that game's a wait and see for me. I didn't back it uh, as much as I love Lego, uh, Mega Man as well. Um, it's more kind of like it. It, it is a wait and see if it comes if it comes out if it comes out and it's terrible. Ah, fuck it, I've got Shovel Knight. You know, that's yeah. the uh, that's, that's the uh, 2014 2015 game that kind of inherits that legacy for me. And we have uh, the, the same, original the same goes coming for, out like, this year as well. Yeah, that's true. The same, uh, the same goes for the likes of Bloodstained, which is the kind of the uh, the kind of inheritor of the Castlevania mantle, and um, ukulele as well. I haven't backed any of them, but I will certainly be keeping an eye on them when they come out. And if they turn out to be good, I'll throw my cash down, no hesitation. Then there you go. Um, another one, and this is for kind of. Um, people who are, although I suppose most people who have started playing The Witcher have not surfaced long enough to download podcasts, 
but uh, The Witcher's 1.07 patch should be released this week. Uh, the only reason that is me- uh, that is important at all is that if any for anyone out there that has played The Witcher, this is the patch that finally fixes your car- fixes your character's movements. I really love The Witcher, and every time I play it, I am trying to only play it for a few minutes, but end up sinking several hours into it. Um, it's a massive, enjoyable, uh, well-realized world. It's great. The only problem I have, particularly I've noticed since I've started kind of switching between playing Batman and then going back to The Witcher, is how ridiculously badly your character Geralt controls. In Batman, as we all know, as we've talked about at length, the one thing the, Bat- the Arkham series is known for is like that combat system, that character movement is watertight. It is ridiculously well-refined uh, combat. This, not so much. Um, I end up... I, like, I'll, I'm probably going to do a live stream this week um, of The Witcher, hopefully before the patch comes out so people who don't know what I'm talking about will see. But basically, you'll be walking along and you'll try to walk up to your horse. Uh, but your movement is kind of like momentum-based, that like if you hold down the stick for longer you start moving faster so that it's it's kind of hard to judge when to stop so what ends up happening is i try to stop at my horse so that i can get on my horse and i end up running several feet past the horse and then i try to get back to the horse and i run maybe one foot too far the other side of the horse some of the time so i end up looking like a small child who's just smashing the jewel shot with his hand hoping for the best um that is literally the, the the one thing and it is a big thing because obviously the control system is how you interact with the game but uh it's it's good to see that that's getting patched out that we're getting um they haven't said it's fixing it but what they've said is they're putting in an alternate system of controlling so that it calms down the movement of the character so i mean i feel like they've just taken inspiration from the uh bethesda open world series yeah, I like I. What I am happy about with um, like this patch and the fact that we're already—it's only been out for a few weeks—and we're already at the one point zero seven patch—is that uh, CD Projekt Red have been very, very, very good to their customer base since this game came out. They have really been listening to what everybody's been saying about the game and trying to patch things as quickly as possible. And on top of that, we've been getting free DLC every week, regardless of whether you pre-ordered the game, picked up the game in the shop. You're getting free DLC every week for I think twelve weeks. Like some of them are kind of some of the things you get are kind of just woo. It's another skin for a certain character, but then some of it is like oh, it's a really cool sword or a really cool bit of armor or something like that, which you know. I'm not a massive RPG guy, despite the fact that I am enjoying The Witcher quite a bit. Um, but like that kind of stuff is an, R- an RPG fan's dream, getting all this kind of stuff every week for free without having uh, to expect to pay for it. And then that's building up good consumer relations for later on in the year when they try to launch. They're launching two massive expansion packs, one later on this year and one early next year, I think. Uh, the combined total of all that kind of ex- extra expansion pack stuff they reckon is going to be the size of the entire Witcher 2 game that preceded it. I am never, goddamn... ever, ever going near The Witcher 3. <laughs> yeah, it is a goddamn massive game, but it's brilliant. Like, it, it, I very much recommend it. Uh, but yeah, that's breeze on past that. I think there'll be, once I get substantially into that game, that'll be a, a discussion for another day. Another day. Uh, this was kind of a weird one. Um we finally got an explanation this week as uh, at Comic-Con as to why we're only getting Gears of War 1 remastered and not the entire trilogy like we got with Halo. And that's basically because it's very hard work indeed. 
Uh, so the developer of Gears of War came out and basically said it took them 16 to 18 months to make one game, to remake one game, because they kind of used this rebooting, or remastering, should I say, of the first Gears of War to cut their teeth and figure out how to make stuff for the Xbox One for the new generation, which is, a, you know, it's a good way to figure out how to make this kind of game is by remastering something else for kind of the new generation. It, it kind of, rather than have Gears of Gears of War 4 or whatever they want to call it, Gears 4, uh, come out next Gears year. Of four, and obviously. It, Gears of 4, yeah. And have them kind of, have that be their first attempt and have it really be rough around the edges. Well, why not have the, get the mistakes out on a remaster where the bar isn't set as high as it would be for the fourth iteration of the series? So that that's a good idea. It still, to me, is a little bit disappointing that um, we're not getting the trilogy. Uh, if it had been the whole Gears of War trilogy, because I haven't played the Gears of War trilogy, if it had been the whole trilogy, I would have put down money, no questions asked to buy that game. But the fact that it's only the first one for now, I'm kind of, I'm a little bit more reticent. Um because I'm not getting the complete story before Gears of War f- comes out. Gears of War 4 comes out, so what's really the point? Well, I know, know it, I know it's going to be a separate. I know the the kind of the arc with the characters in the first Gears of War, the first trilogy concludes with Gears of War 3 and we're going to move into something else now much in the same way Mass Effect is going to Mass Effect uh Mass Effect Andromeda with the next one, but at the same time I still would like to play through the whole trilogy and at least get immersed in that universe and kind of at least have some sort of expectation for what Gears of 4 is going to be. To be fair, there is a a potential wonderful sense of irony that the original three Gears of War games will be available to play via backwards compatibility before this remaster even comes out. Yeah, that's what I would... If they do that, then I'll be going down to uh, a CEX uh, post-haste to pick up uh, three of them second-hand and try my hand at getting backwards. Which is like, are they shooting themselves in the foot, potentially, by doing this? Uh, I think they're. Tr- I think the primary goal is to brutally murder the secondhand games industry, <laughs> because as soon as you get your copy uploaded, as soon as you put your copy of the Xbox 360 game into the Xbox One, you get a digital download for the the remaster or the the HD version, the backwards compatible version, whatever it's going to be. And you don't need the disc anymore, as far as I can tell. So you can just trade it in then. Uh, at which point, CEX is going to become less of a store and more of a library, where you take the games out, you go get your backwards compatibility, and just fucking bring them back at a slight loss. Well, um, oh, gee. well I mean, for backwards compatibility, fair enough. But I mean, by the time that this is kind of rolling out, I mean, the value of Xbox 360 games isn't that much really outside yeah, it depends, of it depends on the game outside of your cods um yeah. i guess there's a couple other series but I, I don't think there's much where that's going to probably make that much of an impact you'd at this su- point you'd be surprised how much gta 4 still costs that doesn't surprise me i said there's a couple of series um where that will be the case but definitely your rock stars because they can hold that kind of power over most places that immediately when I heard about this backwards compatibility literally the first game I thought of was Red Dead Redemption yeah without saying Red Dead Um, Bioshock etc etc yeah um, I don't necessarily because like whatever about Red Dead um, I don't necessarily because I'm so comfortable playing Bioshock and the amount of hours I've poured into that franchise on Playstation I'd much prefer to be able to play it on Playstation but I'll take Xbox One you know what I mean better that than 
not being able to play it anymore. Um, I, I think there is one last thing on the news news, but that could probably prompt a very large discussion. So I think I might kind of advertise n- that next week because there should be more news on it next week because it's part of a month long feature on IGN. Next week we shall hopefully have a sizable discussion on No Man's Sky. I'm I'm fine to hold off that conversation until next week. Yeah, that could be as long, if not longer, than the Batman conversation if we get too hyped about it. So uh, I think with that, uh, we'll move on to our last feature, shall we? Yeah, let's do this. So let's go to the Link to the Cast book club with this week's game, Metroid Prime. Metroid Prime. Metroid Prime uh, is the fifth iteration of uh, the Metroid series uh, from Nintendo. No, hold on. I'm just going to start this again. Fuck it. Okay. Fuck just absolutely choked on my words there. Hold on. <sighs> this is what happens. You break the conversational flow and it just all goes to shit. Uh, okay, I'm just going to read the opening to get me going. The opening paragraph from uh, Wikipedia, I think. Yeah. Okay, right. So, Metroid Prime is a video game developed by Retro Studios at Nintendo for the GameCube. Uh, it was released in North America uh, November 17, 2002, and in Japan and Europe the following year. It's the fifth main installment and the first 3D version of the Metroid series. Um, when I kind of put this game forward last week as an idea, I hadn't revisited Metroid Prime in a long, long time. And it kind of me picking this as the uh, the game for this week came out of uh, our talk, our brief talk on Metroid Prime Federation Force and how much people are worried that's going to completely bastardize the legacy of this game. So I thought it was nice to go back and look at this. And in many ways, Metroid Prime is a weird harmony of what I would describe as the redheaded stepchild of Nintendo's IPs and the redheaded stepchild of Nintendo's consoles. Metroid is a series, like I said, like I said at the start there, this was only the fifth iteration of a Metroid game that we saw. The first in 1986, Metroid. Uh, Metroid 2 Return of Samus, I believe, was 1991, which would make Super Metroid 94. I'm, I'm pretty sure on those. And then 2002, we had Metroid Prime and the kind of the sister game to it on the Game Boy Advance, speaking of redheaded stepchildren of consoles, um, Metroid Fusion. Um, the franchise has been dormant for quite some time the guts of a decade like I said 1994 to 2002 so 8 years there and in that time we had a whole generation Metroid there was no Metroid presence on the Nintendo 64 which for a lot of people of our generation is the beloved console and a lot of our favourite games of all time made the jump from uh, their franchises made the jump from 2D to 3D I'm thinking particularly here of Super Mario going to Super Mario 64, and obviously Zelda moving to Ocarina of Time and Majora's Mask. Um, That whole generation, people, obviously, and it it is a pattern amongst fans of Metroid, 
of people kind of just waiting around for Metroid games that never come. And people wondered what was going to happen when we moved Metroid into the 3D space. And that's what Metroid Prime was. It's the first attempt at a 3D Metroid game. And I would go so far as to say that people who loved Super Metroid, myself included, would have been rather sceptical at the time. Um, it's a, an early time in my life I can remember being very sceptical about. Um, you know this, you're, you're a Super Metroid man, Mark, am I right? I was very, very late to the party, but I'm very much on board the uh, Super Metroid f- fun boat. So you, you can understand that if you hear, like, Super Metroid and the Met- like the, the 2D side-scrolling Metroids have a very particular style about them. So much so, they became part of a kind of, like, a a trope in video games that you'll often hear us say on the show, the idea of a Metroidvania. So Metroid and Castlevania have this legacy of a very particular kind of sprawling 2D side-scroller, a very kind of asymmetric uh, sort of situation. People coming into 2002, the release of Metroid Prime, very sceptical that this kind of weird, off-the-beaten-track 2D side-scrolling adventure is now becoming ostensibly a first-person shooter. Okay, the, the premise of the game, just to kind of uh, briefly run you through it, and this is from the IGN review at the time. So Metroid Prime is an action-packed adventure set in the first-person perspective that takes place just after the events of the original Metroid, although in subsequent years, a lot of people have kind of disputed whether it actually happens between Metroid and Metroid 2 or after Super Metroid, because there are a lot of references to things that happen in Super Metroid. But who really gives a shit? It's a very good game. Lead character Samus Aran, a bounty hunter by trade, chasing down the evil space pirates. Their intention is to use a genetic mutagen called Phazon uh, to create a super army and take over the universe. So, unusually for kind of um, Nintendo, whose traditional kind of um, IP are very kind of, you know, cutesy um, stuff like Mario, Yoshi, that kind of thing. And obviously, you know, slightly darker at times with the likes of Zelda and stuff like that. Nintendo isn't automatically the first name in sci-fi gaming you think of, but in many ways, Metroid Prime was really an industry leader in, or not Metroid Prime, but the Metroid franchise in general is a real kind of industry leader and innovator in the idea of bringing kind of relatively high concept sci-fi for a video game into kind of uh, prominence. Um, Playing it back now, of the games that we've done so far as this being this the sixth um edition of the show uh i think it doesn't hold up as well as other games we've talked about i don't know if you've re since i kind of assigned this as our book book club uh game if you've gone and revisited yourself but do you find that in some ways kind of obviously you, you expect it with older games but kind of the the way the game controls isn't really ideal for the kind of game that now, looking back with 2015 eyes, that you're expecting it to be. I mean, I revisited Metroid Prime, it was about a year and a half to two years ago, and I hadn't really played it all that much when it first came out. I'd briefly kind of encountered it. But the key thing that I took to note when playing it is that while Metroid Prime is a first-person shooter, you can't really treat it like a first-person shooter. 
No, it's not. Yeah, it's not your standard FPS fare. Like FPS kind of has a, a certain connotation now in 2015 that it didn't necessarily have back then. Yeah, and you know, Metroid Prime, like Metroid in general, it follows the suit of being this kind of big exploration. That's sometimes kind of action adventure game. Um, as a kind of out and out first person shooter, it's no, it's not. It doesn't have that kind of responsiveness. Um, no, the the uh, the aiming system in particular is like by sta- the standards of today is very much lacking. Yeah, but I think that is in part to the way that, as you said, by kind of standards today, um, I feel that the designers are a lot more forgiving in terms of what you're kind of aiming at and aiming for uh, and obviously just the general kind of responsiveness and quickness in in aiming and firing is obviously a lot quicker today but you, you definitely with a game like Metro Prime and I try to do this with all the games that we look back at I try to look at the game through the eyes of the year that it came out and yeah. for when it came out and certainly for that time where it had been 8 years since we'd had a Metroid game and as you said you know and this was the kind of big thing that I'd never really taken on board but it's so glaringly obvious is that you know we did we never had a Metroid game on the N64 yeah and, skipped an entire generation yeah and if I'd had a Metroid game on the N64 or like some kind of loose concept loose kind of idea of what Metroid Prime is but for the N64 I'm sure I'd have it would have been one of my favourite games ever um, but because I was sort of a late to the party with the Nintendo GameCube. I didn't really get to experience Prime properly until kind of a lot later on. Yeah, I, I was the same with Prime. I had, I had experienced, thankfully, um, Super Metroid relatively early on because after I got my N64 and became that kid that's like unreasonably obsessed with games, I had got a SNES as a hand-me-down. And uh, kind of, thankfully, my auntie who... Uh, my auntie and uncle who had owned the SNES had very good taste, so I was getting things like A Link to the Past and Super Metroid in there uh, that I was able to kind of get caught up on. I'm not saying that I like beat the game 100% when I was but a small child. No, but at least I had a feel for what kind of universe it was, and by the time I got round to playing Metroid Prime, because when Metroid Prime came out... Um, I don't know whether it was, it was so late 2002. I don't think I had a GameCube yet. And by the time I bought the GameCube, that wasn't the kind of game I played. So I, I didn't really pick it up. It was kind of only a few years later that I ended up kind of picking it up and getting really into it. But at least kind of, like you were saying, you were very late to the party. So like at least I, I had played Super Metroid before I played Prime. So I had kind of, um, I had an expectation for what that game was. So at least I had some, some sort of context, you know what I mean? Yeah, but I do feel that certainly with at the time I was playing it and kind of looking back on it over the last couple of weeks that they what retro studios and Miyamoto and, and Nintendo in general managed to do is they managed to retain that the tension and the atmosphere of those early super early Metroid games and specifically Super Metroid and translate that into the 3D environment. Which I think is particularly uh, outstanding when you consider, and this is a, a note worthy of making, that Metroid Prime was the first game released by Retro Studios. Yeah. 
So Retro Studios, for those of you who aren't in know, because we've mentioned them a few times, are a studio within Nintendo, within their kind of ecosystem that were set up. Um, the kind of the the mission statement for them from the beginning was kind of we want to make games to target the legacy Nintendo audience, the people that are us nowadays, the grown-ups who have memories stretching back two and three generations. We need some sort of studio that's on the side that are looking after those people while we kind of make our new IP over here or kind of our newer iterations, um, which is a great idea, um, in theory anyway. And uh, like it is particularly outstanding that um, the very first game, their very first attempt at this off the bat, uh, it's, it's a big ask trying to turn Super Metroid into a 3D space, much as I imagine it was a massive headache for people trying to turn Super Mario Brothers into a 3D space and Legend of Zelda into a 3D space. Yeah, and I mean, there's a whole discussion to be had on Metroid in general, and like as you said at the start of this, about it being the kind of red-headed stepchild of the Nintendo IPs. And Metroid Prime at that time certainly it it does kind of feel like it would be out of place um, considering everything that come actually well maybe not because there were moments on the N64 with stuff like um, oh what was the Rockstar's game at the time um, Harvest Corpse no Body Harvest that's the one stuff like Body Harvest and they had like stuff like Eternal Darkness on the GameCube so they had they had dabbled with kind of 3D games that had a a more kind of darker side to them Uh, and I just feel like it it always kind of takes me by surprise when I play a Metroid game because I'm just I'm not expecting that that kind of atmosphere it's just it's so un-Nintendo like but because of the sort of inventiveness about it it, that's what really makes it remain a very Nintendo game yeah one of the things I wrote down in my little notes that I was kind of cobbling together earlier on today um was that it is a game that is so unlike anything else. It's a, there's good reason, like you like you uh, intimated, there's good reason why it's Nintendo's red-headed stepchild. is because of all its IPs, it is the most unlike Nintendo, but at the same time, you can't imagine anyone that isn't Nintendo making it. Like, it is, like I said, especially for Nintendo, relatively high-concept sci-fi. Um, it has had, particularly Metroid Prime, but Me- Super Metroid as well, have had such an incredible legacy on every sci-fi game and a lot of first-person shooters that have followed. You can see, if you play Super Metroid and you play Metroid Prime, even the first two Metroid games as well, if you play through those and then you kind of pick up a sci-fi game from 2015 or kind of like any year that's really passed since, you can see the kind of the DNA of Metroid games in there, that there's a whole generation of developers that are inspired that are inspired by this, and that's a, that's a theme we brought up in games we covered previously. There's a reason why we come up with such classic games for the the book club, is because they have such a massive effect on the industry as a whole. And like I said, whereas the aiming mechanics and things like that that I've talked about, the real kind of minutia of first person shooters like the aiming reticle and stuff like that, aren't at the standard we would expect looking back with 2015 eyes someone had to be first or someone had to be the early person to fucking try it or no one would have. You know what I mean? Yeah. That 
kind of like one of the biggest things about this game that you can take forward uh, playing through this it's a very enjoyable experience altogether and much as I kind of maligned the uh, like I said the, the aiming reticle and stuff like that at the start once you get used to it like with any game it's like the Batmobile on Batman once you fucking just get used to how it controls it's fine it's great it's just not usually what you expect when you sit down and play a first person shooter or anything like that you also mentioned I want to I want to hit on the atmosphere it's an incredibly atmospheric series Metroid Prime, an incredibly atmospheric game. Um, there are things that that game does, like with the different kind of scanners and stuff like that, that because it's first-person shooter and you're inside Samus's visor, that you actually get the feeling that you are inhabiting that character. And different things, like if a glare of light comes across, very occasionally a glare of light comes across the visor and you can kind of see very distant like very kind of faded against the visor the kind of the reflection of samus something like that like it, it is very kind of it's atmospheric the, the music is fantastic for kind of like a sci-fi score um the the story as well is very kind of cool fun sci-fi sort of stuff with a more adult tone than you normally would expect because like the thing the thing the the balance nintendo has always kind of attempted to strike at least is that we need because kids are the ones that make their parents buy the console so we need a reason for the kids to get the console into the house but we'd also like a reason for dad who remembers his snes back in the day for him to pick up a controller and start playing something again and whereas it is a massive departure from the likes of super metroid there is enough of the kind of the feeling that you get playing as samus and metroid prime that evokes that kind of the tradition that the three games before it had had yeah and i think something about the metroid games that if you're kind of going into this with the idea that you're playing a first person shooter i think one of the things that can always turn people off is that the metroid prime games as we said they're not you know your kind of typical first person shooters because a lot of the game isn't actually kind of based on actually first person shooting it, it focuses a lot more on the exploration and the kind of puzzle elements and, and stuff of that nature and that's what if you're not kind of prepared for that it can kind of really turn people off but if you kind of really fully immerse yourself in the environment which is a game that is very good at doing that um, it's a very rewarding experience Absolutely. Uh, and one thing I want to want to hop on that's kind of disappointing about, um, like I talk about all the things about the Metroid legacy that people have picked up and they've run with the baton and they've refined it and they've perfected it and stuff like that. One of the things that I don't think Nintendo uh, and the kind of the people behind the entire Metroid series get enough credit for is that the protagonist of the game is a lady. Yeah. Which still in 2015 is something major developers have a problem doing. <laughs> like, I can't tell you. One of my favorite things, and I don't think I mentioned this, I, I may have mentioned it fleetingly in our post E3 coverage. One of my favorite things about how hyped I was for Horizon Zero Dawn is that you're playing a woman in it, that it's not just generic white, brown haired man as your uh, protagonist it, it's something different and it's something refreshing and like I always feel that Metroid Prime is a fantastic example of like I'm growing like I grow I grew up with video games and like there are kind of like you know many different kind of video game characters that when I'm like a small tiny child I'm like oh god it's so cool being that guy or you can kind of you can see you can 
assume with the the silent protagonist if it's like link or something like that that you can kind of like assume their identity get into the kind of the the, the mindset of them and i feel that there's a lot of kind of like girls who grew up playing games who don't have that parallel because they're always playing generic white brown-haired man and metroid does not get the credit it deserves for being a major ip at least sometimes from a major console maker who have absolutely no problem making a female the main character of an entire franchise putting an entire franchise on her shoulders um and like for those of you out there who aren't women and who in 2015 have some sort of problem playing as a woman in a video game, go fuck yourself. Well, I mean, for... go back to the 1930s where you're clearly from. Because I don't think Samus is is um, a protagonist, a female protagonist that doesn't usually get brought up in these these kind of discussions. And I think a large portion of that is because for a large portion of the games you spend. Uh, the, the games behind a, a suit of armor. No, do you know? Do you know what it is for me? For me, it's she's a she's a woman, and it doesn't matter. There, <laughs> like, that that probably actually plays more into it. Yeah, she's a woman, and the whole franchise isn't about how she's a woman. Yeah, it's about it's that okay. Well, not from the start because you find out at the end of Metroid. Yeah, that she's a, that she's a woman, but like from the from that game forward then it's a case of the premise is she's a woman and she fucking kicks ass deal with it start the game because it's class you know what i mean a big deal is not made about it and yeah part of that part of the not making a big deal about it is the fact that she's in the suit of armor but like that just to me illustrates how it doesn't fucking matter you should get over yourself women are allowed to be the main characters in games and women should be allowed to have that experience that we had so often growing up where a guy is the main character in games. Again. I'll just, uh, I'll just calmly walk down off my soapbox, sorry. Yeah, preach on. Um, <laughs> I didn't think I was going to go off on one you're, like that. You're, you're mad as hell and you're not going to take it anymore. <laughs> damn right. Still real to me, damn it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, I feel we've kind of touched on all the kind of key points there. Um, yeah, I'll just uh, I'll, I'll just wrap up by saying that like still to this day, it's considered by a lot of people one of the greatest games ever made, Metroid Prime, uh, and the you can't say any fairer than it is still one of the top rated games of all time on Metacritic with a score of ninety seven. Just let that sink in it's with pretty critic good. review with positive critic reviews of seventy and no mixed or negative reviews at all. So, like, that should really tell you. Like, it is, if you don't have a GameCube on you, if you aren't one of the people like me or, like, Mark, who are sad enough to preserve the consoles that you have... Um, I actually just bought mine kind of secondhand. Oh, yeah. I, still have my, I, I got mine with my confirmation money, and I have just been nerdy enough to make sure it was kept in a box where the dust didn't get into it and stuff <laughs> like that. So I guess I'm, I guess I'm alone on that one. Great. <laughs> I'm the sad one. Brilliant. But uh, no, uh, I was going to say, if you're not like me, if you didn't preserve your console, if you don't have a GameCube and you don't fancy trumping up money to buy a GameCube, you can get an enhanced version for like a sort of a halfway to HD version for the Wii. And it is available. The whole Metroid Prime trilogy is available to buy on the Wii U uh, eShop. So like for the 14 of you, there's probably more pe- there's probably more people with intact GameCubes still than there are people with new Wii U's. Uh, let's be honest. Um, 
but look if you have one of those three consoles it is certainly worth picking up or kind of like even just to kind of uh just check it out check it out and there's many let's plays and kind of retrospectives on on youtube and the like it is something that's that's worthy to uh certainly look back on um i think anyway so yeah if we're gonna wrap that up there unless you have anything else to say there mark about metroid prime no no i i feel Happy we've enough. discussed as needed me uh, so I think the last thing to do, uh, traditionally the last thing before we uh, sign off, is Mark, it is your turn to pick a game for episode 7. We are going to take uh, a trip back to, I think around about 2001, 2002, uh, to a game inspired by the classic film starring Mark Wahlberg. Uh, we are going to talk about Max Payne. Oh, yes. In- excellent, excellent. I look forward to that. Uh, and hopefully we can keep the the Marky Mark discussions to uh, minimum at best. Ah, uh, it's a fucking terrible film. <laughs> yeah, I think we should definitely do a video games uh, transitioning to movies special someday if you're willing to subject yourself to that. I'm not sure if I can put myself through that much self harm, but maybe for the goodness of the uh, of the podcast and our transition into Link to the Box Office, we should probably do that. <laughs> I can work with that. Excellent. So I suppose without further ado, I'll hand it over to you to wrap up. Good, sir. Uh, yeah, well, um, thanks for listening. It's a bit, a bit of a mammoth show, but I thought there was a lot to talk about with Batman there. Uh, as I said, if you haven't played it, go and play it, because it's really good. And I guess we will see you again sometime next week. So until then, ta